You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Again, welcome to those joining us online this morning. And uh, uh, if you uh, are joining us maybe for the first time, just let us know that. Uh, we like to know that you're uh, with us so we can uh, know who you are and be praying for you. Uh, well, we're in Romans 7, and uh, if you were with us last week, uh, by the end of the sermon, you might have thought that maybe the law is bad. In fact, as I was talking to Ian, uh, uh, my friend Ian down east, uh, he was talking about his, at his church that there was somebody who came up to him at the end of the service and said, are you saying that the law is bad then? And he was able to show him in verse 7, the next verse, which we're about to cover today, are we to say that the law is bad? <laughs> right? So, so he, he, he apparently preached it well, because uh, that could be your conclusion uh, based on what Paul is saying. But what Paul is going to show us this week is that, no, the law is not bad. Sin is bad. And what the law does is show us that we are sinners. In medical world, if you want to get better, you need a proper diagnosis, right? Our family has seen doctors this last week. We want them to be accurate. We want them to know what they're talking about when it comes to uh, the medical issues. And if you are going to get better, you not only need a proper diagnosis as to what the problem is, you also need a proper treatment, correct? Doesn't take long to find uh, problems on botched surgeries. I did a little Googling this week, right? Uh, probably don't do that if you're up for surgery soon. Um, but but uh, there was one person had had this surgery, and about four years later, there's like, man, there's just pain in my abdomen. And uh, what they found was that there was the handle of a scalpel in his abdomen still, five inches long, uh, that had been left there from his surgery four years earlier. There was, a, a, there was also a woman who had had a baby. They take the baby off to the nursery, and when the baby came back, she noticed some blood on the baby's tongue. And what the doctor had done was taken the wrong baby to fix the tongue problem. That was a little uh, bit of an issue, I'm sure. Probably a few dollars in a lawsuit there. And then, and then there, there's another one I came across was a man who uh, was getting kidney surgery. They removed the wrong kidney. They took the healthy one and left the diseased one. That's a problem, right? Each of these things, uh, trying to fix a problem and only what? winding up having more problems with the way that they were fixed. And so too can it be with us spiritually. If we don't understand the problem, if we don't understand the proper diagnoses, it will only lead to more problems. And this is what Paul is trying to show us this morning as we look at Romans chapter 7, 7 to 13. We need a proper diagnosis of our spiritual condition if we're going to get the help that we need. Romans 7, 7 to 13, let me read it. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that the sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure." As we look at the text this morning, we see that our biggest problem is not God, it is not his laws, it is sin. And if you're going to live eternally, then you must get this right. And this is what we're going to be studying this morning together, but before we do, let me pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. What we have just read, we believe, Lord, is your word. Though penned by Paul, Lord, we know that, Lord, you are the one who gave him the words. You are the one who is revealing your truth to us through the scriptures. And God, as we have just read, we believe that you gave us the law to help us to understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. God, I pray this morning that you would help us to understand our sinful condition. Not the sinful condition of our neighbors or a different family member, but ours, our own sin. God, we're so thankful that for most, for many in this room, Lord, you have opened their eyes to their sinful condition. And that by your grace, God, that you have showed them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that whoever would believe in him should have life. God, we do not take that gift for granted this morning. And Lord, as we study, we, we pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that we would understand who we are better, and Lord, more importantly, understand who you are. God, lead us by your Spirit. Speak through this preacher, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... Romans chapter 8, we've entitled the chapter Christian Liberty. Last week, we've seen that we were freed from the law, freed from its condemnation. This week, we see that it is through the law that we are freed. First, through the law, I was freed from ignorance. I was freed from ignorance. We see this in verse, verses 7 and 8. Again, he asks the question, then, what then shall we say? That the law is sin. Again, he answers, by no means. You cannot have a more emphatic way of saying it. He wants you to understand that there is no truth to say that the law is sin. There is, it's not possible. Now, again, Paul anticipates the objections. He anticipates what they may say about what he has just said. He does so because he's been through this over and over again as he has been teaching the gospel. And his teaching about the law had the Jews stirred up continually. See, they believed that it was through the law that you were saved. And Paul 
is saying, yeah, kind of. It doesn't save you. The law cannot save you. It shows you that you must be saved. And so as he went from city to city proclaiming the gospel, the Jews would rally against him saying that Paul was teaching people to disobey the law. And in fact, in Acts 21, when he's in Jerusalem, this is the very thing that they stir the people up about, that he was teaching the people to disobey the law, that he had brought a Gentile into the temple, and they were trying to kill him until the Romans came along and they just arrested him. They could not understand what he was saying about the law. But, as in many cases, if you just understood what the Old Testament actually said, they could have came to the same conclusions that Paul did. Don read the, the Psalm 19 earlier. Uh, what, is the, what, is the, what does David say about the law? Let me just highlight some of the things that it said. The law is perfect. It's pure. It's right. It's sure. It's true. It's righteous, eternal. That the words of the law are to be embraced and desired. We've seen that in verses 7 through 10. But then what does David do? What does his fixing on the law show him? Well, he turns to his own sinfulness. He understands by gazing at the law that he was a sinner. Psalm 119, 175 verses of celebrating the word of God, the law that had been given them. And in verse 176 of 119, it says this, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. The person who truly understood the law would see that they fall short of the commandments. And this is what Paul was trying to teach the people over and over again. And so he says emphatically, is the law sin? No, it by no means. And then he says this, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He's explaining what he has just said about the law. Without someone telling us right or wrong, then there's no real ability to know what is right or wrong. Now, as we've learned in Romans chapter 2, there is a sense where everyone has a conscience. They understand that there is a right and that there is a wrong. But the law came in and took away all ambiguity as to what was right and what was wrong. It showed us what God's standard is. Of course, we live in a society where the definition of what is right and what is wrong is continually changing. If you've been on this planet for decades, you will understand that what is right in 2021 is different than what it was in 2001, in 1981. Now, as you get older, you can start thinking about the good old days, right? When everything was right. Well, that, that was not true either, okay? There is only one standard of right and wrong, and that is the Word of God. And it is the law that shows us what is sin, Paul says, if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what was sin. 
Boa says this, just as a black speck is made visible against a pure white background, so is sin made visible by the purity of the law. The law reveals what was there all along, but was invisible since everything around it was the same. In a world of black sins, individual acts of sin are unknown until a pure white standard is introduced. Immediately, all the individual acts of sin become visible when looking at the Word of God. Paul has already said this back in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, showing us that it was the law that shows us our sin. Now, you'll notice from this verse 7 all the way through the end of the chapter, he uses the pronoun I over and over and over again. He is giving us a personal testimony of the impact of the law on his life. He says here that he would not have known what it was to covet without the law, do not covet. Now, let's see how awake you are on uh, this leap ahead for an hour day. All right, what, what, um, what number law is this one? Do not covet. Of the Ten Commandments, it is number 10. Wow, that's really impressive. Okay, it is number 10. Do not covet. Really interesting that this law goes to the heart. This law, actually, as we understand it from uh, Paul's writing in uh, verses like uh, Colossians 3.5, is the very opposite of the first commandment that tells us that we are to worship the Lord our God alone. That's how it begins. Number 10 says, do not covet it says in Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. To covet is to desire for something. It is to lust after. It is to want something that is not yours. It is to want someone that is not yours. And Paul, as I mentioned in Colossians 3, 5, helps us to understand that covetousness is idolatry. It is to worship something that you should not have. Schreiner says this, those who covet have another God than the one true God who has, creator, who has created the world. Thus, coveting should be understood as the basic sin. Right? I mean, again, all we have to do is go back to the garden. It was a sin of covetousness. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they looked at the fruit and it what? It looked good. I really desire that. I think it would be a good idea if I ate that. And so they give in to the sin of covetousness. And Paul's giving a testimony that he would not have understood what it was to covet if it was not for the law, thou shalt not covet. So what happened as a result of the law? Did Paul stop coveting? Well, it says in the book, I shouldn't covet, so I stopped coveting. Is that what happens? Has that been your experience in life? Somebody tells you not to do something, so you're like, great, I will not do that. No, no questions asked. Is that your experience? Well, Paul says that's not any of our experience. Why? Because of sin. 
Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul's already said in verse 5, if you were with us last week, that sin was aroused by the law. He's showing us that when there comes a commandment, that sin goes on the offensive. The problem was not the law. Sin is the problem. Your sin, my sin, that's the problem. We read here that sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment. We need to understand the aggressiveness here. Start talking about the word for opportunity. It says, was used as a military base. This word, aformi, was used of a a military base. The starting point or base of operations for an expedition. A springboard for further advance. So it is that sin establishes within us a base or foothold by means of the commandments which provoke us. This provocative power of the law is a matter of everyday experience. You see the law, you hear the law, you hear the commandment, and your automatic reaction within your flesh is to rebel against the commandment. Right? You see a sign that says, do not enter. What's your thought? I wonder what's behind there. I should check it out. Somebody hands you a package. Do not open. What are you tempted to do? Just take a, you know, maybe I could unwrap it where nobody would notice just so I could see what it is. I want to know. Again, going back to the garden. Do not eat from that fruit. What's the only thing that they desire to do? We have this rebellious natures within us. Every single person here. Now, just as we go through this sermon... You're probably thinking, I sure hope somebody's listening. You know, I, I, hope, I hope my husband hears this. I hope my wife hears this. I hope my kid hears about this. I hope, right? Listen for yourself. We often think that forbidden fruits are the sweetest. Augustine talks about as a teenager, the trouble they would get into wasn't even about the thing. It was just about the thrill of breaking the rule. The opportunity to, to, to walk in rebellion. And so with the commandment, I love what Paul says here, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. <laughs> it wasn't like I just fell one time. There was a, a plethora of sin resulted as a result of the commandment in my life. Sin went to work and was not just satisfied with one kind of coveting. It, w- it resulted in all kinds of covetousness. MacArthur, he talks about Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan paints a vivid word picture of sin's arousal by the law. A large dust-covered room in an interpreter's house symbolizes the human heart. When a man with a broom representing God's law begins to sweep The dust swirls up and all but suffocates Christian. This is what the law does to sin. It so agitates sin that it becomes stifling. And just as a broom cannot clean a room of dust but only stir it up, so the law cannot cleanse the heart of sin but only makes the sin more evident and unpleasant. 
It's all it can do is show you your sin. It's, and in fact, it entices you to sin. It reminds us of what Paul says here at the end of the verse, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Cranfield saying, says here, even without the law, sin is indeed present, but it is inactive, or at least relatively so. But within you and I, as soon as we hear the commandment, you shall not or you should, our automatic sinful reaction that every one of us has is to do the opposite. This is your true condition. As we think about the proper diagnosis, you need to understand this is who you are, a sinner. And so the law frees us from that ignorance to think that we're anything but. Christian liberty also through the law frees us from innocence. It frees us from innocence. He says in verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now, a whole lot of ink has been spilled on, I once was alive apart from the law. What does that mean? When could Paul say that he was alive apart from the law? And so you if you're like me, you get into the commentaries, okay? Well, what, what, what could that mean? Obviously, he's talking about Adam here. That's what some commentators say. Now, track with what they're saying. Why would they say that? When was there a time where we were apart from the law? When you were alive apart from the law? We're just like, well, okay, back, 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 back. back. Well, before sin. Before there was sin, we were alive. And then the commandment came, the commandment, the one commandment came, and that enticed us to sin, and then therefore we died. So thematically, it like, seems to make sense. It must be Adam. The only problem is what? What's the pronoun being used here? I. I. He's talking about himself. If you know, I was talking to you about my weekend. You would not, and I was like, you know, yesterday I went for a walk. You would not autom automatically assume I was talking about Adam. Right? You, you would think, well, yeah, he, he went for the walk. So the plain English is that it's I. Some also think that, that what he's talking about here is I in the sense of we all together, Israel, we were alive apart from the law, but then the question would be, how was Israel ever alive apart from the law? How could it be said that they were alive apart from the law? And then, again, we have that whole first-person pronoun problem. So those are some theories that are out there. I luckily got to read all about them this week. <laughs> but, but they're theories. I think the clear reading is I... So then the question is, so what? <laughs> so then what? How could he say that he was alive apart from the law? Some believe, well, it's that childhood innocence. Before his bar mitzvah, before 12 years of, old, years of age, he, he didn't really understand the law, and it was in that sense that he was alive apart from the law. 
that's possible. But I think, as we understand Paul from the New Testament, I think probably better is that before he came under conviction of sin, before he really understood what the law was getting at, before he really understood that he too was a sinner in need of a Savior. Think about what Paul said of himself even in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 4 to 6. He's like, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's how he felt about his life. We think about Jesus talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector in their prayer time. The tax collector is, you know, is like, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's the, what's the Pharisee? I'm so thankful that I'm not like this tax collector, right? Thinking that he's a good person. That was Paul's case. He thought, according to the law, he was blameless. Was that true? Really? Was he blameless that he had never broke any of the laws in here? Well, except for that whole coveting thing, which is what his whole personal testimony is about here. When the coveting came, when he understood what it meant to do not covet, when he started to understand what the, what the law of God was saying, he became under conviction of sin in his life. This is what he's saying. But when the commandment came, when I truly understood it, sin came alive and I died. For the wages of sin is death. He understood that, that what the law was telling him about himself was that he was a sinner. And that as a result of that, he deserved death. He continues on talking about the law in verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. When you read the Old Testament law, what does it say? If you walk according to these things, there will be blessings. Leviticus 18.5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And so if you walk according to these ways, there will be blessing. If you do not walk according to these ways, there will be cursing. And so what the the, the, the law was to do is to bring life, but what it did in his life as he started to see the results of his rebellion, it brought death. Schreiner says here, Paul's words here strike hard against the Jewish conception that the Torah curbs sin and diminishes its power over human beings. Paul's analysis would have been shocking to his Jewish contemporaries, for he claims that the Torah does not prevent sin, but augments it. In other words, it shows us our sin. It does not prevent our sin. The law is good, but it did not prevent our sin. For sin, again, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. He uses the exact same phrase that he did back in verse 8. Seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Thus says the Lord, sin comes along proactively and deceives you. 
And as a result, it brings death, spiritual death. This is how sin works over and over again. It takes God's word and it twists it and deceives you. When you hear the commandment, your first natural response is to question the validity of the commandment. Just as Adam and Eve did, you begin to question whether what God has said is truly good. You begin to think that God is actually keeping good from you. You think that the thing that God is telling you not to do will actually make your life better if you do it. You desire, you covet that which God tells you to say no to, and sin convinces you that you know better than God, and you do what he tells you not to, or you don't do what he does tell you to do. And in so doing, sin kills you spiritually. It killed, Paul says, and it killed me. For the wages of sin is death. Is that your personal testimony this morning? Understanding the power of sin. Understanding the desires of the flesh. This daily battle that goes on with sin. Paul's experience is all of our experience. When it came to the law at one time, you either ignored it, it didn't care about its consequences and lived however you wanted, right? You're like, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm going to do whatever I wanted. So that was one way that you dealt with it, or you thought through your legalism that you could be made right with God. If you were a better person than, uh, than others around you and did good things, then you thought you could be pleasing to God. There is, there's those three different approaches. You can either fall before God and understanding that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, or ignore it, do whatever you want, or third, I'm going to be a good person. So here's the rules I'm going to follow, and by that, I'm sure that God will let me into heaven someday. But the law was given that we might see that the only way for us to be saved is through Christ. We're freed from innocence. What did I mean by that? Freed from innocence. How many people think they're good people? It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody thinks they're good people. And we have a whole society promoting it. We're all basically good people. And we like to hear it. Yeah, yeah, feed that. I like that. Yeah, I'm a good person. Ah, I mean, I make mistakes. I wouldn't call it sin, but I make mistakes. I'm not perfect. I get it. But I'm good. I'm a good person. But the law makes clear this is not the case. We all fall short of what the law says. What I find interesting over the last 10 and a half years is that we've just been going through the Bible one book at a time, right? And I don't hear everything, obviously. We're good Canadians here. But every now and then, I'll hear it get through the grapevine to me that, why is that preacher always talking about sin? And which I'm always like, 
that's really interesting because that's not the game plan, right? I don't start on Monday thinking, okay, how can we talk about sin again on Sunday? But what have we found as we've gone through book after book after book is the Bible talks a lot about sin. Why? Because if we don't understand the problem, then we're not going to get the right diagnosis, right? If you don't understand that you're a sinner, then you're going to be in real trouble. And, 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 and what these verses are showing us is sin is not sitting back passive. Sin is active. It is on attack continually, every day. Do you guys understand that? That you are at war against sin every day, even, even on this side of Christ, you're, at battle, you're battling every day. We're going to be looking at this more next week. I was listening to Piper this last week. He said, your greatest enemy is not Satan. He can accuse you. He, he can try to tempt you. But your greatest enemy is sin. It is that which will condemn you. Your greatest enemy is sin. Sin never takes a day off. And so you must continually be on guard. Chester, he says this, we must always be on a war footing. Imagine a soldier in the thick of battle who decides that today is his day off. He unfolds his deck chair, puts on his sunglasses, gets out his paper, and sits in the sun reading. He wouldn't last long, right? He'd be done within an hour, best case scenario. So it is with you and I. If you decide to take a break from your battle with sin, you will get wounded. You will fail in your battle. And so we need to take seriously the threat of sin on a daily basis. In the flesh, what the law tells you is you are not basically a good person who is innocent. You are a sinner who desperately needs a Savior. This is what the law is saying. It is exposing your sin, it's provoking your sin, and it's condemning your sin. And the third thing we see in Christian liberty, through the law, I was freed from illusion, from illusion. Verse 12 says, says this, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So he's answering the question that he, he said in verse 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? No, the law is not sin. The law is good. Listen to the words that he uses here. It's holy. The commandment, really, he's summing up all 613 precepts. Every single one of them was good and holy and righteous. To be holy is to be like God, set apart from all else. His word came from him, and so it is holy. It is righteous. In other words, it is right every time. Never is his law wrong. It is always right. And it is always good because it comes from him who is good. The very definition of good. And not only that, it is good for us. If we were to walk in his ways, every time it brings 
life, not death. And so his ways are holy, righteous, and good. God, through his law, has showed us his standards, what he requires of mankind. It opens our eyes to our reality. Augustine says this, God's commands, God commands what we cannot do that we may know what we ought to seek from him. It gives us the proper diagnosis. Without you understanding the sin in your life, you would be in big trouble, right? You continue to be under this illusion that you're a good person, that you're doing well as far as God is concerned. But the problem is, the law shows us that we are sinners. It is the proper diagnosis. We all have a sin problem. So then he says this, did that which is good then bring death to me? In other words, did the law then bring death? Is that that what happened? No. Again, that's not what happened. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good. The problem again is sin. Sin twists and deceives and it results in death. Interesting, God takes that which is bad and brings about good. Sin takes that which is good and brings about death. Sin takes God's word and brings about death. Laws are good, right? Laws are are good for us. As we talked about last week, the solution is not to remove the law. When somebody is told that they should not steal... And then they steal. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with the sin in the person. The person who committed the crime is in the wrong, not the law itself. So it was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. His whole point all along is like, I gave you this so that when you do mess up, you would understand that you do sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. NIV, New American Standard says this, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. In other words, that you would understand you are not a good person. You are not an okay person. You are a sinner. You have fallen short. This is the whole point of the law. The law was given that we might see our true wickedness. I mean, just consider just the Ten Commandments. 613 precepts in the law, but just take ten. Just the Ten Commandments. How did you do even this last week? Never mind your lifetime. How did you do this last week in walking in obedience to those things? The law shows us that we are in desperate need of grace and of a Savior. Sin is not something that we should be apathetic about in our lives. Thinking again about that, those medical terms, those physical terms. You should see sin as serious as a heart attack, as serious as cancer in your life. You should never be apathetic about it. You need to understand it in your life. It should drive you to your knees seeking forgiveness from the Savior. 
Lloyd-Jones, he lists nine ways in which sin commonly deceives us. Just think about this list this morning and think about how sin might be deceiving you even this morning. One, sin gets us to misuse the law, convincing us that as long as we have not sinned outwardly and visibly, we are all right. Forgetting that with God, the thoughts and intentions of the heart are all important. Reminds me of Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, right? We cleaned up all the really bad stuff. Now we just have these like, things like gossip and you know, stuff like that. It's not a big deal. No, they are a big deal. As serious as cancer, as serious as a heart attack. That's one tactic that sin uses. Sometimes sin changes its tactics and tells us that everything is hopeless. And we might as well keep on sinning. Just keep going. Who cares? It's all hopeless anyways. You're never going to be able to stop, so just keep doing it. Three, sin tells us that it does not matter whether or not you're holy. It says, why don't you keep on sinning so that grace may abound? God's got this. Jesus took care of it at the cross. Just keep sinning. It's okay. Four, Sin deceives us by making us angry at the law, feeling that God is against us if he prohibits anything. If he were for us, we think he would let us do what we want to do and be happy. Really? What's with all the laws? Why why do you have to keep all the good stuff from us? Five, sin gets us to believe that the law is unreasonable, impossible, and unjust. Six, sin makes us think very highly of ourselves. It makes us ask why we should be bound by any law. Seven, sin sin tells us that the law is oppressive, keeping us from developing the wonderful gifts and talents we have within us, all of which would emerge if we only did not have to be held back by God's commandments. It's popular in our society today. The law is actually keeping us from all the good that we would have in our world. If we can just get rid of people who say, thus saith the Lord, then we would have a utopia. It would be such a loving place. It would be such a great place. Eight, sin makes righteousness look drab and unattractive. That's kind of a popular, at least teens, 20s tactic of sin, right? And then lastly, sin causes us to discount the consequences of willful disobedience. It's not a big deal. The consequences won't be that bad. It's totally worth it what you're about to do. And and that's just nine of them. You think about all the different ways that sin deceives. It's on and on and on. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We must understand the seriousness of our sin. You cannot hold on to the illusion that you're basically a good person. The story is is told of a prof. He, He told a sermon such as this. And afterwards, this woman was so upset with him. And she said to him, "You you make me feel this big through a sermon like that. What do you think his response was? He said this, Madame, 
That's too big. That's much too big. Don't you know that that much self-righteousness will take you to hell? Every single one of us wrestle with this. You want, to, you want to somehow live in this illusion that you are a good person. You, yourself. But what the law shows us that you have to understand that you are a sinner. And the only hope you have for treatment is Jesus Christ. The proper diagnosis that we all have is that we have a sin problem. And the solution is Christ. How are you dealing with your sin problem this morning? Not how somebody else is dealing with their sin problem, but how are you dealing with it? Are you trying to fix your sin problem by religion that won't save you? Listen, if you're trying to be religious, you think, well, maybe if I come to church, maybe if I watch a sermon or two online, maybe, maybe that will fix my sin problem. It will not fix your sin problem. A list of do's and don'ts, serving some unknown God, billions of people doing this around the world, it will not fix your sin problem. Your rebellion against God will only remain. Trying to fix your sin problem by good works will also not save you. Once again, good works will, will, will only leave you with the problem you had in the first place. You want to think about this physically. Be like being diagnosed with a tumor and thinking, okay, I'm going to really eat healthy now and I'm going to exercise. Everything's going to be okay. That's what people do spiritually when they think that they can somehow get rid of the sin problem by being a good person. Well, the tumor's still there. You're still going to die. You have to deal with the tumor. You have to deal with the sin problem. Some people try to fix this problem by what? Just ignoring it. Men, medically, you could be maybe thrown into this category. If I don't go to the doctor, I don't have a problem. Right? They'll just pretend it's not there. And it will magically disappear. Well, sadly, that's what a lot of people do with their sin. I'll just ignore that it's a problem. Maybe later I'll deal with that problem. And in the end, they'll find it's too late. Boy says this, only those who know they are spiritually sick seek the great physician. Listen, only Jesus can deal with your sin problem. Only he can give you what you need. It is him who can perform surgery on your wicked heart. How does he do it? First, he came to earth and he lived the perfect life. He walked in perfect obedience to the law. He fulfilled the law. He did not walk contrary to it in any way. He fulfilled the law. And then he went to the cross. And on that cross, he took your sin. He took my sin upon himself. And then the wrath of God that is due for all sin was poured out on him. 
for our sin. And then he died. But on the third day, he rose again. Forty days later, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and someday soon, he's going to return. And he has promised that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. By placing your faith in him, that is your only hope to deal with your sin problem. This is not a one-time deal. In your battle with sin, you need to cling to the gospel every day. You need to look to your Savior for victory. It is only through him that we might win. Boaz says this, God uses a holy thing, the law, to reveal an evil thing, sin, so that a necessary thing, death, might result in the most important thing, life. It's my prayer that this is true of you this morning, that the law has freed you from ignorance, innocence, and illusion so that you might see your sin for what it is and understand its deadliness and turn to Christ so that you might find life in him. Let me pray. Lord God, we're so thankful for your mercies, for your grace towards us. Lord, we thank you that you are the great physician. That, Lord, you have given us the diagnoses that we all need to hear. We are rebellious sinners. Lord, our only hope is Christ. And it is to Christ that we cling to this morning. Lord, thank you that all who have placed their hope in him have hope not just for today, but hope eternally. That Christ is our hope in this battle against sin. And one day, one day soon, Lord, we will be freed from this body of sin and we will be with you. Where there will be no more battling with sin. For you will have achieved the victory. Lord, we are so thankful that we can know you today through Jesus Christ. And God, I would pray this morning for anyone who is wrestling with sin in a way that is not bringing honor and glory to you. God, maybe they're listening to the deception of sin. God, reveal that to them this morning. Bring them to repentance and help them to walk in life through Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here still clinging to the, the hope that they are a good person, Lord, bring that crashing down this morning. Help them to see the desperation that all of us face. That, Lord, we face a death sentence, but there is hope in Jesus Christ if they would just place their hope and trust in you and repent of their sin. God, we thank you that through you we have life. That through your law, that was good. We have freedom from the old lies. Lord, would you make us more and more like you through this time this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.